What's up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Kale Brooks uh, because Mando is not here in the flesh, but he did pre-produce some uh, segments for us. Uh, so you will be hearing from Nando a little later in the show with his Decode segment and his awesome interview with Nina Turner. Kale, how are you doing? I'm doing good. No, yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm, I don't know, for some reason things are aligning well right now in my life. I feel very productive. Uh, just also happens to be while we're like chasing down Nando, he's traveling the world and um, I don't really know where he is, honestly. Yeah, he's He's been on planes. He's, I don't know. I think he might still be in LA. He might just be sleeping in. I don't know. He might've just like asked to call this one off. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. but no, we did. Yeah. We have recorded Nando segment. We'll pull that up later. We also recorded the interview with Nina Turner uh, and it was really good. So please stick around for that. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, yeah, how are you, absolutely. Anna? I'm doing okay. I'm um, a little under the weather today and I think I'm hoping it's just a cold. I have like a scratchy throat and mm. um, a little fatigued, but uh, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm not like terrified of anything. Um, but at the same time, I'm really, really happy to like be able to go out and and see people I haven't seen in such a long time. Um, you know, COVID really helped me recognize how much I value people in my life. So uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Ida Rodriguez, has a comedy special on HBO Max. It's it's available to stream if you guys are, um, if you have that platform. And I got to go to a screening of that in downtown LA this this week. And if I got anything, it was definitely from there because it was like mm -hmm. a giant um, venue with a ton of people there. And it was kind of crazy. Like I haven't been in any type of environment where there's like hundreds and hundreds of people um, mm -hmm. kind of jam packed in one small confined space. But it was a good time. That sounds nice. I mean, it could I mean, part of it just could be like psychosomatic that you're you're not feeling great because of any number of reasons. And then you go, oh, well, it must be. I was just in a room with a bunch of people and yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people are having similar thing. I've had those moments too, where, you know, I've been in a, a space with a decent number of people and then came out of it, you know, the next couple of days, like freaking out that, you know, uh, this, like this little cough or this little, like the scratchy, whatever, like, you know, maybe, but it's whatever. I think, I think it's going to probably take a while for people to, to feel comfortable like doing these things and then not having those reactions that that's probably yeah. just going to be the norm for, for a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, why don't we get started because we have awesome segments prepared for you guys. And uh, there was a story that I found yesterday regarding Afghanistan and a drone strike that the United States had conducted in Afghanistan in Kabul specifically. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit on TYT, but I also wanted to bring it to the Jacobin audience because it gives you a sense. I mean, many of you already know, but it it's a perfect way to highlight how U.S. foreign policy does the exact opposite of what it claims to want to accomplish. Right. So anytime you hear the Pentagon or U.S. lawmakers talk about human rights abuses abroad, I want you to think about these types of stories because if we genuinely care about human rights abuses, uh, a drone strike would not play out the way that it has. Okay, so let me give you those details. So a recent investigation into a drone strike that was conducted in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the final days of the Afghanistan war, uh, indicates that there was actually no misconduct and no negligence, even though 
the target was misidentified and the drone strike resulted in many civilians dying, including 10 members of one family. So uh, the review was actually done by Air Force Lieutenant General Sami Saeed, and he found that there were breakdowns in communication and in the process of identifying and confirming the target of the bombing. But Saeed concluded that the mistaken strike happened despite prudent measures to prevent civilian deaths. (laughs) Now, the uh, claim that prudent measures were taken to prevent civilian deaths is laughable considering how many civilians died. And this drone strike was certainly political because it happened almost immediately after uh, there was an ISIS suicide bombing at the gates of the Kabul airport that led to, uh, you know, members of the U.S. military dying, but also a ton of Afghan civilians dying as well. And so it seemed like this drone strike was hastily done without the necessary, you know, prudent measures. And so Saeed is the inspector general of the Air Force, and he's considered an independent inspector because of the fact that he is, yes, he's in the Air Force, he's in the military, so it's kind of weird to call it uh, independent, but they claim he's independent because he does not have anything to do with operations in Afghanistan. So already it's just like the sham investigation and it keeps getting worse. He says this, I found that given the information they had and the analysis that they did, I understand they reached the wrong conclusion, but Was it reasonable to conclude what they concluded based on what they had? It was not unreasonable. It just turned out to be incorrect. Now, what ended up happening in this drone strike? Well, um, I just want to note that we now have uh, more information about the intelligence they had, right? So um, the intelligence was in regard to uh, this white Toyota Corolla. They claimed that the white Toyota Corolla contained a bomb that served as an imminent threat to U.S. soldiers, right? And again, let me just remind you, there was that suicide bombing um, at the gate of the Kabul airport. Uh, The uh, bombing killed 13 U.S. troops and 169 Afghans at the Kabul airport gate. Um, And then uh, this drone strike was incredibly devastating in retaliation. Saeed said, uh, Saeed was asked, I should say, to investigate the August 29th drone strike on a white Toyota Corolla sedan, which killed uh, uh, Zemurai Ahmed, I'm sorry, Zemurai Ahmadi and nine family members, including seven children. Ahmadi, 37, was actually a longtime employee of an American humanitarian organization. And there were reviews of the video just before the drone strike happened, right? Video of the target. And what we're now learning is that video indicated two minutes prior to the drone strike that there was a child in the strike zone. So two minutes before the drone strike happens, video shows that there's a child in that zone. And they did the drone strike anyway. And so Saeed, who did the investigation, was asked about this, and here's his uh, insanely callous reaction. The, the physical evidence of a child uh, was apparent at about the two-minute point. But I'm just telling you, I put eyes on myself. I just didn't have it. I mean, they're doing it for me, but I had to see it for myself. I, I'm just saying, it, it, it is 100% not obvious. You have to be, like, no kidding, looking for it. Uh, but when you're looking for it, certainly after the fact, if you ask me, was there evidence of a presence? Of, yes, there was. So just to be clear, two minutes before the launch. Yes. So, Kale, I mean, 
the child was there. You could see the child in the video. But the thing is, you just you'd have to look for it. You'd have to look for the child in the strike zone. And uh, even though they took all the prudent measures necessary to avoid civilian deaths, they just they forgot to look at the video. They'd have to look at it to make sure that there's, you know, no children in the strike zone. Yeah, the the amount of layers of just like deception and, and like rationalization of like the the logic of how any of this makes any sense is like so insane like it just like it doesn't make any sense because like the premise is that well we have to do this because it's something something about security it's uh it's about stopping terrorism terrorism it's about uh you know dealing with the taliban in a in an appropriate way to show that the u.s isn't weak or something it's like the the rationalizations are all built on sand and it's like so much so that it's like it's it's just it's truly mind-boggling and evil it's like there's no other way to put this like it's it's truly just such like an evil situation where you know like the you know the lieutenant general i mean like at some level you know yes they're making a decision at the same time it's like this is just like the name of the game that everyone in this uh in this situation are a part of that like this is what you do this is how you rationalize this This is how you make sense Mm -hmm. of murder and uh like, I don't know. It's just, and of course, like, you know, of course the way the media is treating all of this, like has been, you know, it's just the the persistent kind of, um, uh, I don't know if it's resentment or just like the, um, you know, pushing back on the Biden administration for pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, right. And so, you know, these things happen not because, you know, of, you know, American militarism of, you know, our actions in the region, like the fact that we're involved there at all. It's because uh, Biden has pulled out. And so therefore things have to get more chaotic. It's, um, you know, if, if the American presence was what it should be, then you wouldn't have these kind of horrible callous uh, situations. Or, I mean, the same thing too. I mean, you know, other reports of like, you know, um, there was like some recent special coverage, uh, I forget where on cable, about, you know, um, you know the conditions of, of women in Afghanistan, you know, being sold and just, you know, sex slavery. And, uh, and like they're, you know, reporting on these people or like having to like sell those like families having to sell their daughters. And it's like mm-hmm. the reason why they're doing this, obviously, is because it's basically the upshot is the U.S. government and the U.S. military should be back in this region. That all right. the bad that's things... the only reason why they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's the uh, you know, that's the solution in the minds of, well, obviously the Pentagon due to moneyed interest. But in terms of the media, the media just serves as stenographers for the Pentagon and the defense contractors that uh, stand to profit from uh, military invasions or any type of, um, you know, involvement of the United States abroad. And so what the United States did over 20 years was just further destabilize that country and left it in such a terrible position. And so, and then the other thing I wanted to just quickly note is the fact that, you know, anytime you hear U.S. lawmakers try to, you know, generate support for a potential war or hostilities toward a specific country, 
the line that they typically use has to do with humanitarian rights or yeah, human rights abuses and how us getting involved is really a humanitarian issue. But the fact of the matter is the way that we treat civilians abroad in all of these regions that we're involved in is horrendous. And it proves that the United States does not care about human rights abuses. I mean, it certainly doesn't even care about human rights abuses here within our own borders. Uh, But when you look at the way that we carry out these airstrikes, these drone strikes with all these civilians dead and how the Pentagon and the White House refers to those civilians as collateral damage, it just further dehumanizes individuals who are innocent, who did absolutely nothing wrong. and, And it shows like, just how callous uh, our government is in regard to humans, um, both here and abroad. And so I I say that as the hostility toward China increases, uh, you know, you hear the kind of rhetoric that the Biden administration uses toward China, the Trump administration used toward China. And it's, it's not a good sign. That's not to you know, whitewash or to minimize some of the human rights abuses that do take place, right? I think that what's happening to the um, Uyghur Muslims is is horrible. And that's not to, you know, be an apologist in any way for that. But to have the United States claim that it's concerned about human rights abuses when we're bombing and killing Muslims in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, at yeah. what we're doing in Yemen, it's just, they, the U.S. has no leg to stand on. That's the point I'm trying right. to make. Right. And, and, you know, coming out of the interview that we did a couple of weeks ago with uh, the journalist Andrew Coburn, I mean, he makes the point, you know, or at least a lot of his coverage has made the point that uh, so much of the actual involvement uh, abroad, our actual like military action uh, comes out of the fact that like they have this massive budget and they have all this technology um, and they need to use it effectively. Um, and it's still something it's kind of still a puzzle to me. And I If you remember the interview, I had asked Andrew about this. And to be honest, I I wasn't crazy about his answer, but I also don't think anyone has a good answer right now, which is the question of like, why is it that the military budget just keeps on going up and up and up that it seems like the American ruling class doesn't really have that much of an interest in, you know, going into these, these events, like they don't, like there's, very sectional, like significant, but sectional parts of the ruling class that benefited from Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance. But by and large, like it wasn't, you know, like there was some redistribution upward. Part of that was through like, you know, the bonds that uh, that the government took out from capitalists, from corporations. And so that's that's all true. But at the same time, it it just it seems like it's it's. Mm-hmm cheaper and therefore, you know, like less expensive. And um, it's to the benefit of the American ruling class to just take care of these things through non-military, through economic measures. And yet the budget just keeps going up and up and up. And it doesn't really make sense. Like, Right. I mean, I think, and I don't think this is the full answer, but I, I think that it would be wrong or a mistake to discount how much of an impact our military spending has on the shares, like the the, the stock value, right, of mm-hmm. um, the various weapons manufacturers and private military contractors. If your portfolio is heavily invested in defense contractors, and remember about the top 10% is overwhelmingly invested in the stock market, right? I think that that alone is a pretty significant incentive to just kind of turn a blind eye to 
constant increased military spending year after year after year. Um, I remember in the segment that I did about Afghanistan several weeks ago, I, I focused on how these defense contractors do in the stock market, how, how these companies perform in the stock market compared to um, you know the S&P 500, compared to the rest of the stock market. And defense contractors always outperform. And so there's a huge issue with how the, you know, we, the free market doesn't necessarily decide, right? Sometimes things can be um, set up or rigged in a way where uh, actions will, actions by humans will decide like what ends up happening with the the value of, of, of a very, of a significant company or defense contractor within the stock market. Mm-hmm. I, I think c- certain things are Decisions are made specifically to benefit the value of the shares for any particular mm-hmm. company. You see it play out over and over again. I don't know yeah. if I'm articulating that well, but no, no, it's basically I mean. no. I mean, it's like war is basically just kind of like one more casino adventure for these people, and yet yeah. obviously, like it has. I mean, mo- like I was going to say, it has massive, major, horrible, you know, human effects, but most of these people's decisions do too. So, I mean, right. they just kind of peddle in destroying the poor and, uh, you know, and sucking up as much money as they can out of us. But... Exactly. All right. Well, um, let's give a shout out to our partner, um, our sponsor, and then we'll uh, move on to our decodes. Sounds good. Well, uh, if you are a longtime watcher of the show, you know that our sponsor is Verso Books. And we did not have the Verso Book Club read this past month, but it's a new month and we got it. So join the Verso what the Verso Book I already screwed it up. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook and Verso that we're gonna third time's the charm. Here we go. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months. And if you join in November, you will get these books. First one is Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough by Holly Jean Buck, a political case for ending the fossil fuel industry. Probably probably a pretty good case. Uh, Second book is Space uh, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space by Fred Sharman, a radical history of space exploration from the Russian cosmets to Elon Musk. You can also get The Anthropocene Unconscious, Climate Catastrophe and Contemporary Culture by Mark uh, Bold, an exploration of how climate anxiety permeates our culture. And finally, uh, a new edition of Dark Water Voices from Within the Veil by W.E.B. Du Bois, with a new introduction from award-winning poet and novelist Orne uh, Fanon Jeffers. I don't know poetry. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kale. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about a topic that you've all likely seen in the news, and it's the topic of inflation. In fact, I already started uh, working on this segment before Milkgate happened. That's a CNN segment that aired yesterday over and over again on their channel. Um, but nonetheless, I-, I wanted to talk about the reality of inflation and put things in perspective in case you've fallen victim to some of the uh, scare tactics on cable news. So let's do it. Earlier this week, after endless concessions to Senator Joe Manchin to basically get him to sign on to the budget reconciliation bill, he signaled that he just couldn't do it because he's allegedly concerned about how social spending will impact inflation. 
Throughout the last three months, I've been straightforward about my con concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our $29 trillion in national debt that no one seems to really care about or even talk about. Nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation. Historic inflation is a funny way of putting it. And uh, I, I'm going to get to an excellent piece that was written by Seth Ackerman in Jacobin to kind of help really put things in perspective, give people the important context necessary to understand this moment, especially if you look at, uh, you know, our recent history, fairly recent history with inflation. Uh, but what you're hearing from Joe Manchin there is something that's regurgitated over and over and over again in corporate media, especially in cable news. We know that inflation is raging. We hear from so many CEOs, politicians, money managers, pundits. There's no sign of any commodity coming down just up. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey bringing up hyperinflation in the last week, saying it's going to change everything, and it's happening. If, if you're worried about inflation, it's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Paul Tudor Jones, is, as always, is right about inflation. It's much worse than we thought. Just completed two days of board meetings, and literally the topic du jour for each day was inflation. I've been alarmed for a long time, and I'm more alarmed now. Now, as many of you probably already know, the term inflation essentially describes when companies start raising the prices of their goods at the same time as uh, people begin purchasing, um, you know, at, at the same time that purchasing power is in decline, meaning that you spend more on whatever thing you're buying, right? So your dollar uh, doesn't get you as far as it previously did. But Considering all of the alarmist media that we're seeing right now, how do Americans actually feel about inflation? Do they see it as their top concern? This is where Seth Ackerman comes in uh, with his awesome Jacobin piece, and he really does help to put things in perspective. So if you look at uh, earlier this year, what percentage of Americans felt that inflation is the most important issue. Well, according to Gallup's most important problem page, the share of respondents who felt that high cost of living slash inflation was the country's most important problem was as follows. Just 1% in July, 2% in August, and then it dipped back down to 1% in September. Doesn't seem like Americans are buying the alarmist narrative. Now, Ackerman finds that there was, in fact, an uptick in concern among Americans uh, during the month of October, which was likely the result of the relentless media coverage, coupled with the GOP campaigning on that very issue. So the share of Gallup respondents citing inflation as the country's most important problem in October has jumped to 5%. So if that seems high... Have no fear, because historically speaking, it's not that high. Uh, to put that number in context, because not too long ago, concerns about inflation were actually far more pronounced. Um, so more people were actually concerned about inflation from April to September of 2008, when the percentage citing inflation as the most important problem averaged about 9%. 
But even the 2008 numbers failed to capture the disconnect between the current mainstream media coverage of inflation and how concerned Americans really are about it. Uh, The last time Americans actually did consider inflation to be the number one problem in the country was in the 1970s. For instance, inflation was the number one concern of Americans for the whole of the year 1973, and then again in 1974 and again in 1975, and every year through 1981. Taking an average of all the Gallup polls over the course of the entire nine-year period, inflation was cited as the number one concern of not 5%, but 44% of respondents, because that was an era where Americans were experiencing hyperinflation in the economy. Um, So, That, by the way, hasn't stopped CNN or other news outlets from, you know, basically taking this narrative, this alarmist narrative about inflation today and really running with it. What does inflation mean for American families? This is the story of the Stotler's Weekly Shop. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. We have uh, two biological kids, and then my wife and I have a big heart for adoption, so we adopted a sibling group of two, then three then one, and then we have a, uh, a kid living with us right now who's uh, kind of in a foster situation. It feels like money isn't going as far as it used to. No, I mean, CNN could have chosen to talk to an ordinary family. The Stotlers, as wonderful as they are, is not a normal family in today's day and age. They've got a lot of kids. So going to an extreme to make a point about how awful inflation is kind of gives you a sense of what CNN is trying to do here. Now, uh, this is where Milkgate happens, right? So if you've been on Twitter, you probably noticed most of the reaction to this particular CNN report is about milk because they talk about just how many gallons of milk they buy in any given week in order to feed their family. Let's watch. All right, now we're moving on to dairy, which is right there. We started seeing everything going up. Grocery prices went up. Gallon of milk was $1.99. Now it's $2.79. Well, when you buy 12 gallons a week times four weeks, you know, that's a lot of money. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks, brother. Again, this is what they buy every week. Again, not the typical family. Uh, But I do think it's important to do fact checking, even if you're having a discussion with a non-typical family that's complaining about inflation, because she noted some very specific prices there, what she used to pay for milk and what she finds herself paying for milk today. And uh, if you look at the USDA's website on milk prices, you'll find that the reality is a little different. Did Kroger regularly sell milk for $1.99 a gallon? According to the USDA, the average in Dallas was $2.86 back in January, and now it's $3.22, a 15% increase. Uh, The nationwide average went from $3.57 to $3.60. It's important to know the actual numbers because they help to put things in perspective. 
Uh, the alarmist narrative, as scary as it might sound, doesn't really ring true when you look at the hard data. Now, later in the story, it was claimed that the family went from spending $150 to $200 per week on groceries to now $310 uh, per week. And uh, that's an insane level of inflation that should have been fact-checked as well, but they didn't fact-check it. So the indexes for food shelter, and gasoline were key drivers of inflation growth last month. Of course, those items are key to the basic financial life of normal Americans, thereby stretching their bottom line even thinner. However, let's take a look at how much things have gone up in prices. Uh, new vehicles jumped 1.3% over the past month and are now 8.7% higher compared to 12 months prior, while gas prices shot up by 1.2%. Now, here's where CNN should have done its fact check because... Grocery prices were 1.2% more expensive in September than in August, continuing an expensive trend. Over the past year, food is 4.6% more expensive. Shelter costs have risen by 3.2% during the same period. I give you those numbers because based on what um, the matriarch of the Stotler family said in that video, she's experiencing inflation close to like 55 to 100%. But that's not really something that's uh, shown in the data. Uh, inflation for groceries, inflation for food has gone up by about 4.6% specifically. And so uh, when you take a step back and you look at the overall economy, it's actually easy to see that inflation hasn't even hit every single sector of the economy. It's actually limited. So that's good news. Current inflation is confined to a tiny section of the overall economy. But here's the bad news. The sectors hit the hardest do hurt ordinary Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. So I'm not trying to underestimate the impact that inflation has on some families. But again, it's important to put things in perspective. So when you strip out volatile food and energy prices, so-called core CPI inflation, the picture was somewhat brighter. Prices rose by just 0.2% in September, slightly higher than in August, and climbed by over 4% over the past four, uh, over the last 12 months. That's still well above the Federal Reserve's uh, 2% target, but not as high as recent months. So uh, it is, by the way, worth taking a look at what's causing inflation. Because Joe Manchin and other corporate goons like him would have you believe that inflation is caused by social spending, that giving Americans financial assistance during the pandemic, for instance, is uh, negative to the economy because it drives inflation. But that's not it. If we look at what's causing inflation today, there are some causes that are um, transitory, and we'll get to those in just a minute. And then there are other causes that are, but that we're being told are transitory, but are not. And it has to do with the Federal Reserve's behavior. So let's start with cheap money, and then we'll get to supply chains and labor. So uh, the issue of cheap money is an important one, because essentially you have the Federal Reserve pumping money into the financial system. And that action is known as quantitative easing, and it's meant to provide liquidity to banks uh, it's, it's, in other words, capital to the financial markets. And the whole idea is that that money, it, that low interest, cheap money is supposed to be passed down to small businesses and uh, individual consumers, right? It's supposed to help them borrow 
as cheaply as possible. But uh, that has not quite happened. As Bloomberg notes, the strategy is clear and deliberate. Snuff out volatility from the bond market and make debt the cheapest it's ever been to deter saving and encourage investment. The hope Cheap cash leads companies to invest and hire as rising asset prices make more people uh, or make people more confident and ready to spend. Now, the inevitable side effect, more volatility for assets as investors, here's the important part, chase returns around the world and, of course, the risk, bloated asset prices pop, undermining financial stability before the real economy can benefit from all that cash. So one of the areas where we do in fact see quite a bit of inflation, I think it's actually the most uh, noticeable, is in the housing market. And the Federal Reserve's activity in providing liquidity for banks and for corporations uh, has led to these very financial institutions taking the money and trying to find a way to profit off of it further. Not invested in their employees, not, uh, you know, provide cheap loans to uh, individuals or to small businesses, but to take that money and invest it themselves in order to get a higher return on their investment. So what are they doing? They're buying residential real estate, and then they turn that real estate into rentals in order to corner the rental market. And so we're seeing that play out both in the price of homes that, you know, families are looking to buy, but also in the price of rentals, because they are now kind of monopolizing uh, the system by being these massive corporate landlords, while at the same time taking available inventory of homes to buy out of the market. And they're doing mass purchases. They now account for uh, one in five, 20% of home purchases in the country. I'm talking about individual, not individual, I'm talking about institutional investors here. So um, cheap money provided by the Federal Reserve uh, is certainly part of this inflation story. And you're less likely to hear about that uh, among our lawmakers or even in the corporate media. Now, the Federal Reserve claims that it will taper its quantitative easing program beginning this month, that would also translate to higher interest rates for working Americans. So it's a tricky balance that only gets scarier when you consider the fact that the Fed is a government agency with unelected individuals who have a massive impact on our financial well-being. Well, now let's move on to supply chain issues, because that is also contributing to the inflation that Americans are experiencing today. The coronavirus pandemic really highlighted the vulnerabilities in our global supply chain. That very breakdown in the supply, coupled with an increase of consumer demand, obviously has an impact on prices for some products. So while I have no love for the guy, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is right in citing the causal relationship between supply chain bottlenecks and inflation. The the key factor globally continues to be uh, getting past the pandemic. The Delta variant forced a number of countries to re-implement restrictions, which slowed the recovery and further interrupted global supply chains. Those effects are diminishing now, but as economies reopen, supply bottlenecks are still weighing on production in some industries and boosting prices, contributing to that higher inflation. So as, as the Delta cases decline, we do expect progress to speed up, although we can't rule out the possibility of another spike this winter. Here in the U.S., it's, it's a very similar story. Very strong demand this year on track for 5% growth. 
Uh, like elsewhere, the Delta variant uh, temporarily slowed the economy's progress in the third quarter, keeping people from resuming public activities and, in some cases, from returning to work. Job growth slowed sharply. Q3 GDP is, is going to come in lower than we thought. Now, we'll get to labor in just a moment. But before we do, let's focus on what Jerome Powell said about the supply chain. And also keep in mind that not the, you know, there are specific sectors that are impacted with inflation. So we're talking about things that Americans need, food, shelter, cars, transportation to get around from point A to point B. And so uh, while the supply chain uh, or the supply side of the economy is, in fact, struggling, Americans still need to consume these things, right? These are things that Americans need. And so after a brief brief dip at the beginning of the pandemic, people have embraced both e-commerce and brick and mortar retail as pandemic restrictions have eased. That's good for an economy blitzed by COVID-19, but it's also created uh, its own set of challenges in the form of a backed up supply chain that wasn't built to weather a pandemic. So the supply chain issues were apparent from the very beginning of the pandemic as well, because the system incentivizes maximizing profits. And in order to maximize profits, many of these corporations uh, refuse to have warehouses stocked with their goods. Uh, usually what they do in order to avoid paying storage fees is as soon as you have a transaction, that's when uh, the product will be, uh, you know, essentially either created or or made ready for you. So during the pandemic, shuttered or understaffed factories couldn't produce what people needed and large manufacturers didn't have reserve supplies because they weren't designed to operate that way, meaning goods like toilet paper and hand sanitizer were missing from grocery store shelves. And again, let me just reiterate, to save money, companies avoid storage fees, which means that they do not have inventory of products just laying around in a warehouse somewhere. Many businesses operate on a hair trigger on-demand principle. They tend to make only what is projected to meet demand because storing excess product in case of a supply chain or other crisis means manufacturers are spending more money on storage facilities, which they then can't spend elsewhere. This is the important part, including on bonuses for executives or dividends for shareholders. So again, we have yet another situation where uh, the profit motive uh, that really fuels capitalism works against us, right? Because again, they're looking to save money. They're not going to store product. Uh, They're going to find a way to do their operations as cheaply as possible. And then we go to the issue of labor. And I would argue that would be the most important issue. And this should be a huge wake-up call for those who have underestimated the important role of labor in making our economy work. Earlier, Fed Chair Jerome Powell also mentioned labor, which is a big part, probably the most important part of the supply chain. Without workers, everything breaks down. So there's been a labor shortage as people fall ill or have to care for sick relatives, juggle childcare and work, or understandably refuse to work for low wages in unsatisfactory conditions during a pandemic. And we've talked about that quite a bit here on um, Jacobin, uh, at Jacobin. You know, we've talked about the various strikes that have happened, uh, the John Deere workers who are striking. In fact, you've likely heard a lot about how labor shortages are um, taking a toll on the service sector, right? But there's also a shortage of truck drivers who happen to be a critical part of the supply chain. 
Most of the nation's goods are transported by truck. Drivers are in demand and they're commanding higher salaries, up 25% since 2019. In a couple of years, I'd like to hit the six figures. So there's a lot of interest in your driving school right now. Yes. But Harbor Trucking School owner Luis Franco says none of his drivers could get licenses for months when the pandemic hit because the Department of Motor Vehicles shut down. And even now, it can take months to get an appointment. The DMV um, needs to make it a priority in order for them to get out there on the road and start making money. Right now, it's about putting products back on store shelves. I think there are cost issues, uh, particularly when you talk about labor costs for the third shift. On the other hand, what is the cost of doing nothing? We now see what that is. Mm. So while you have these uh, partisans in Congress trying to uh, blame this on the other side and make this some sort of uh, partisan political issue, while you have uh, people like Senator Joe Manchin claim that uh, providing more financial relief to Americans is what's causing inflation, don't allow them to, to use some ridiculous uh, faux scapegoat in, in explaining what's happening with inflation. First, I think the important thing is to put it in perspective and not allow the alarmist commentary analysis and news coverage to get to you. But more importantly, understand what drives inflation, why it's happening, so you can really assess for yourself whether this is something that's temporary or something that's long-lasting. Really, the Federal Reserve has had the biggest impact on inflation, especially when it comes to the housing market. But uh This also really shows the uh, vulnerabilities of our supply chain, something we've talked about previously, and more importantly, just how little workers have been um, undervalued previously. They are the most important part of this economy. Without workers, nothing functions appropriately. And uh, I'm really, really proud of the workers who are demanding more, especially at this uh, rare moment where they tend to have more leverage than usual. Kale. Hmm. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, Anna, I just thought inflation was when, you know, your money just kind of magically, naturally just becomes less valuable over time. It just <laughs> Isn't it just that one of those automatic things in life? Uh, if you're it, watching cable news, you probably will believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that is like, that's part of, I think on the one hand, it's understandable that most people like don't understand what's going on when it comes to inflation, because it's, really kind of complex and it's it's largely forces that have to do with like businesses trying to make a profit and trying to realize that profit um and then coordinating with all other businesses simultaneously and you know can can they all realize you know the the possible like profit based on like the capacity of their production right now and all of that kind of stuff um and so most people understandably you know uh they t- they see money and they think like, well, this clearly has some like special property about it where like it's, it can get you things, but it also has like a shifting value. It's not always, you know, like the, you know, mm-hmm. milk today was, you know, $3 or something a couple of months ago. Maybe uh, I maybe thought I remember buying it for like two fifty or something or, and the fact that these like prices are shifting, it, it makes sense that this is all really confusing. And like you're saying, I mean, the people who actually do this, you know, like look at these, this information, um, you know, people in like CNBC or whatever, like have nothing to offer to like help clarify right. like what any of this means. Um, because, uh, you know, at some level, I, I think fundamentally, I don't think they know what it means. Um, I think Jerome Powell probably knows what it means. Um, like the people, like the actual people, like the people that companies are hiring to study this stuff probably know what it means. Like 
the right is always going to have smarter people than the left. I'm sorry. Um, it's just that they also have horrific incentives to like yep. crush everyone. And uh, so because the, fundamentally it's like, it isn't personal. It's just like, it's competition. They have to make money. And so um, that's where I think you're totally right. I mean, between, you know, like uh, inflation, uh, be, you know, and like cheap money being attached to like, you know, homes and, uh, and converting them into rentals. Um, you know, I, I think I kind of remember something not too long ago where, uh, all of these, uh, banks were like bundling up like cheap homes and yes. uh, people bought them thinking, you know, this is a safe investment. Uh, I don't know. Let's, it might be worth remembering that a little bit more, uh, and, uh, considering what the implications were in that situation, but, right. um, and, and yeah, and just like the supply chains, the fact that like companies, like the fact that it, it still boggles the mind, like this, like just in time production where, you know, uh, goods are only available, you know, not like barely seconds before, uh, you know, sometimes like they're not ready before you purchase, like they might have an idea, maybe someone's going to purchase this, but most of the time it's, they're going to make it when you purchase it. And that is insane like that's like a horrific way to to run a system uh when all of a sudden uh you know some exogenous force comes in and and kind of uh throws that out of whack and now you know so the fact that companies are you know scared that like i don't know if i'm gonna make a profit anymore because we've built an entire economic model on this like highly precarious situation and they did it because they had to do it because of competition. Like no one rationally would make the system. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we all end up suffering the consequences. Totally. Yeah, totally. And, you know, if if you find yourself like really impacted because look, the, the economic reality for a lot of Americans has not changed during the pandemic or has only gotten worse, right? And I think that those are the people who never get any type of news coverage. Um, And so a little bit of inflation does impact them, especially when you look at the sectors of the economy that um, have seen an uptick in prices. And so one of the things that I've I've been trying to be better about, and I, I think I've actually kind of mastered it, to be honest, is when you're looking for a product and you're noticing that either the prices are astronomical or the shelves are empty, like think about secondhand um, purchasing, which I've been doing more and more of lately, like Christmas ornaments this year, for instance, I, I bought them secondhand. Like, why not? Like they're Christmas mm-hmm. ornaments. There's a lot of really great resources for for clothing and it's like far more sustainable and far better for the environment to, um, you know, find stuff that's been lightly used, but is in great condition instead of going out of your way to buy something that's more expensive and brand new. Like just like rethink, um, the consumerism that I think we've all been conditioned to engage in from like the moment we were born. Um, and, and think about how you can, um, first of all, save yourself money, but also act in a way that's also better for the environment. And that's not to put the onus on individuals to, to do something about climate change, but it's about like, Hey, useful tips to not fall victim to like the constant, um, advertising that tells you like, you need to buy the next greatest, brightest, shiniest thing, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. And I know you, you'll agree with this, that like, obviously fundamentally, you know, we need to raise wages and we need to, we need to like actually have at the national level, like economic policy where, uh, you know, 
in some ways, like competition isn't always a bad thing. Like you want cheap prices. Uh, you just don't want cheap prices to mean that like capitalists have like squeezed workers into to like a nub and and then they have no money to actually like buy any of this stuff afterwards. Exactly. And so, like raising wages, having like, you know, unionization where like workers actually have far greater democratic control, but um, highly competitive firms uh, that like keep prices down, as long as like we see the firm not as like this, like, and not, this isn't like an optical problem, like, but if we change society where like firms were no longer like private dictatorships of, uh, you know, uh, stockholders, you know, and uh, bosses that, you know, they're just trying to maximize profit for their own sake, because Mm -hmm. they get to, they get to decide what to do with the profit. But if we transformed it so that like, we just say, oh, this is just a social institution that produces things that we need and creates uh, growth broadly uh, in the economy. And we can harness this to then uh, deliver what we need while also maintaining good living standards, uh, basically saying, you know, we have a greater democratic say over what we do with the, the actual surplus, the actual profit that's produced at the end of the day. Uh, that's like... That's Sweden. That's like, that's what Sweden was doing. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's why, again, when you want to like know why, like, it's like, why is it that they have like the greatest living standards and also like, are, you know, are not like this horrible poor country, like that it's, um, they didn't have runaway inflation. They like had uh, highly competitive internet multinational companies. Uh, and yet the actual population like has a good life, had a good life, has a good life. Um, it's because of democratic control over the economic process that we yep. got to decide, the workers got to decide what you do with the profit. And you don't just let bosses pocket it. You say you're going to invest in social programs. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And to be honest, um, I already had agreed with that. But the current situation with the budget reconciliation bill has made it even more pronounced, like waiting for our lawmakers Mm -hmm. to ensure that workers' wages are fair. It's just, it's, you're going to (laughs) lose. You need, you need to organize your workplace. I think labor unions is, it's really the only answer. Um, All right. So I know that Nando isn't here, but he (laughs) uh, did (laughs) record a decode segment for you guys. So um, Kale, do you want to intro it? Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to pull it up in one second. Um, we decided uh, to cover and I'm saying this like we Nando presented and I did some work behind the scenes uh, covering just the election results, uh, you know, from this past week, um, both the actual like results themselves. But it was we're hoping to kind of put this in somewhat of greater perspective of, you know, trying to get away from both the fatalism and the idealism that is both. It's obvious among the liberals uh, but it's also a part of the left, too. And I think there's like room for, um, uh, I don't know, constructive feedback, maybe, or constructive, like, how do we actually, you know, move forward uh, instead of just, you know, getting stuck in the same rut over and over and over again. So uh, I'm going to pull that up and uh, and then we'll be back and then we'll do Nina Turner. So love it. All right. 
So there was an election this week, and it was a disaster for the Democrats. So bad, in fact, that former Maoist and current CNN contributor Van Jones has officially declared a five-alarm fire. These are, these are our voters. These are voters that came to us in 2018, came to us in 2020, and have abandoned us in droves in two states that should be in our column. That's a big deal. That's a that that is that is a five alarm fire. Now, a lot has been made about the debate around critical race theory in this election and how it was a deciding factor in Virginia. But the real issue seems to be anger about school closures, which have activated many parents politically. Dana Jackson, whose daughter is now in high school, is an independent. She's voting Republican this year, and she sees others like her. I have some friends that are Democrats who have never voted red in their life. And this time they voted every red box they could find. I mean, they were raising hell about Trump. and They opposed President Trump. But here they are now voting for the Republican candidate. Yeah. Because of schools. Yes, because of schools. Schools have been the great equalizer. During the last year, as the COVID-19 pandemic forced classrooms to go virtual, she helped organize rallies to reopen schools. I think that our children's lives are at stake, literally. Our children were locked out of school last year, and it was it was detrimental to this mm-hmm. area. It was detrimental to all of the states that have lockdowns for mm-hmm. children. That debate has flared at school board meetings across the state and country. Now... The COVID-19 pandemic likely cost Trump the election, and it makes sense. COVID sucks, and people blame whomever is in power. But now the Democrats are in charge, and their handling of the pandemic isn't great. Well, they get punished too. But liberals, you may be surprised to find out, are not taking a whole lot of responsibility for their defeat. Nope. They are blaming the voters for being too racist. Some of it was... Uh, dog whistle racism. Thousand percent. It's essentially white identity politics. That works for Republicans. Education, which is code for white parents don't like the idea of teaching about race. The, The real ominous thing is that critical race theory, which isn't real, turned the suburbs 15 points to the Trump insurrection endorsed Republican. The Delta variant of Trumpism. In other words, Yunkin, uh, same disease, but spreads a lot faster and can get a lot more places. Now, this reminds me of Principal Skinner in The Simpsons wondering if he's out of touch. Am I so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. The weird thing is that Youngkin ran a as a sensible moderate Republican in an age when that is increasingly rare and won pretty handily in a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points just last year. In Jacobin, Paul Heidemann writes, quote, Youngkin ran as a classic country club Republican candidate. While happily accepting Trump's endorsement, he never campaigned with Trump and was careful not to act like the polarizing candidates, remember Todd Akin, who have cost Republicans wins in the past. Instead, he ran a Mitt Romney-style campaign, casting himself as a responsible conservative, beating back liberal overreach. McAuliffe's campaign, however, refused to recognize that Youngkin represented something different from Trumpist clowns like Madison Cawthorn. McAuliffe's campaign focused monomaniacally on associating Youngkin with Trump, 
placing personality before politics. With Trump largely exiled from the media at the urging of liberal Democrats, efforts to scare Virginia voters by evoking his specter predictably fell flat. (laughs) There you go. It cost the liberals for kicking Trump off Twitter. Now, the liberal strategy got so crazy in its zeal to paint Youngkin as a Klansman-like racist that the Lincoln Project literally staged a false flag event where they dressed up like tiki-torched white nationalists evoking Charlottesville. The stunt predictably backfired badly. It confirmed people's suspicions that liberals are smearing everything they don't like as racist. Meanwhile, some exit polling suggested that Youngkin may have even won the Latino vote in the state. And although we'll have to get better precinct data to make sure, the fact that it's even a question shows that simply calling Republicans white supremacists or racists isn't a great strategy. But while it's fun to gloat in liberals' disaster, the fact is that our side saw a crushing defeat on the night as well. India Walton lost her race for mayor of Buffalo after winning the Democratic primary to the incumbent Byron Brown, who was forced to run a write-in campaign. The campaign against India Walton was particularly vicious. The chairman of New York's Democratic Party compared her to David freaking Duke after several top Democrats in the state refused to endorse her after winning the primary. New York Democrats even teamed up with the state's Republican Party to help Brown get the signatures needed to launch the write-in campaign. Vote blue no matter who. According to Bronco Martinez and Jacobin, Brown was also helped by a bipartisan political establishment united against Walton. New York Republicans put up a united front with Brown, with right-wing party members, most of them outside of Buffalo, making up a third of the signatures they helped collect to try to put him on the ballot. Together, they fear-mongered about Walton using a playbook indistinguishable from the red-baiting tactics Republicans have used the last few years to rile their voters up against Democrats. Now, the nature of the attacks on India Walton were particularly disgusting. India Walton grew up very poor. She got pregnant when she was just 14 years old. You can imagine what her life was like as she struggled to make ends meet. In the campaign, thus, she was punished for being poor. In 2003, records show the Erie County Department of Social Services brought a fraud case against Walton because of $410 in public assistance in the form of food stamps that she received in 2002. The government claimed that Walton, quote, received income and or wages that were not budgeted against the needs of the household, which caused overpayments of assistance to defendant. This is not uncommon. Um, So when you receive food stamps or cash assistance, you have to recertify every six months. And that's generally when people report their income. I had picked up a second job and I got $295 extra dollars in food stamps that I had to repay. According to Branko Marchitic again, Brown successfully turned the election debate to the petty personal mistakes of Walton, a woman who became a working mother as a teen before becoming a nurse. She was charged with $295 worth of food stamp fraud in 2003. She owed $749 in back taxes in 2004. She was stopped for driving with a suspended license. She visited her cousin before he went to jail. She failed to show up for a court summons sent to the wrong address. She wrote a rude Facebook post and her car was towed just last month over unpaid parking tickets. It worked. A week before Election Day, more than half of the voters said their opinion of Walton had gotten worse since the primary. Now, India Walton's loss was devastating because it seemed like it was a done deal after she won the primary. 
but also because getting a self-avowed socialist in an executive role in a large American city would have opened up a lot of possibilities. Remember, Bernie Sanders started his career as a mayor, having to oversee things like keeping the streets clean, plowing snow, making sure the services are running efficiently, that proved to the voters that he could marry his radical critiques with competent management. Congress people, on the other hand, like AOC and Ilan Omar, don't have that kind of responsibility. I mean, it sounds harsh, but Congress people are essentially glorified posters at this point. And while it is true that the ruling class and their puppets in the Democratic Party played all manner of dirty tricks to defeat Walton, the fact is that they were successful. There is no referee in the sky that we can go cry foul to. The reality is they had the power to do it, so they did. And that is a bleak, bleak prospect to accept. But accept accept it, we must, because we invest so much time and energy in the big electoral races. The left simply does not have the institutional power to really get across the finish line for those bigger offices. The only thing that will give us the institutional power to challenge the two parties of capital is to build labor power. Organized labor is the only counterweight to capital. Buffalo's labor density is about 20 percent, which is way higher than the national average, but is still quite low. Had Buffalo's labor density been closer to 50 or 60 percent, there is no way that Byron Brown could have pulled off a write-in win. Now, we make fun of liberal idealism, which says that voters simply have racist ideas in their heads, and and that is that. But sometimes we on the left suffer from idealism as well. Our argument is that if the right candidate runs with the right program and principles, people will see them as a viable alternative for the status quo and vote for that candidate. But people simply don't buy it right now. Because they suspect correctly that when they get in, they won't do any of the things they've promised them to do. They won't be able to do those things because they are not buttressed by a powerful and militant organized labor movement. And when we bemoan the fact that Biden and the Democrats are throwing away their chance at passing these big pieces of legislation that will help solve the myriad crises we face, it completely hides capital. It's not that Biden isn't getting anything done because he has a precarious majority, although that is certainly true, but because there is no effective counterweight to the power of capital. If Biden had more Democrats in office, there would be even more politicians doing what Manchin and Cinema are doing right now. You know how I know that. Look at Obama's first term. We have to focus on power and structures, not personalities and individual political decision making. So while the results this week paint a bleak political future, There is hope in the rising militancy of the American working class. On the same day as the elections in Virginia and Buffalo, the striking workers at John Deere rejected the contract that the company says was their final offer, a contract that included certain gains. That kind of militancy is something we haven't seen a lot of recently here in the United States, but it's the kind of thing that builds power. The thing is, like, we have to keep in mind in this moment when we're looking at whether it's a victory or a loss, if you look at the past and look at situations where the left has been victorious, working people have been victorious. And the thing is, is that they've, they were, they did it in sometimes harder situations and they ended up amassing greater power and, and pushed their way into office. And yet they still came up against certain limitations where they found, Oh, actually we can't just immediately put our program into, into the works, even though like Mm. we effectively hold, this amount of power in government, either executive offices or legislative offices. Uh, and it's because the thing we have to just keep in mind all the time is the fact that like in capitalism, capital is the most powerful force in society. And so 
any politician, regardless of their particular principles or ideology, are going to be coming up against the power of business. The fact that if you're a politician in, you know, in your district and you say, I want to do uh, this big, great welfare program to the benefit of working people in my district, uh, the corporations in that state might say, I don't know if I want to do business in your state. I think I'm going to get up and move and drive up unemployment and you might not get reelected next time. Like that's a massive threat that capital can wield at any moment. Truly Uh, the fact that the fact that like these massive corporations have so many plants, like the Amazon has so many plants across the country that if they want to punish a politician, uh, it's not going to hurt them that much to move one warehouse or one uh, fulfillment center or something Uh, that like, they're going to get more out of the, you know, punishing the politician than they, you know, than hurting themselves in a minor way in that immediate sense. And so that's like, again, I think the, just the point of like, that's what Biden's up against. It's not two politicians. It's the American ruling class right now. Kale, if you were running for governor of Virginia and uh, some Republican CEO from private equity fund said that you were trying to install critical race theory in schools, how would you respond uh, I'm a readite through and through. Critical race theory is is degenerate. <laughs> um, it's uh, no, no, no. Read Marxism. I would I would be handing out uh, Adolf Reed class notes. That's <laughs> yeah. I think that'll work. I think that would totally work. I think that would get the uh, suburban moms in uh, in Fairfax County to uh, to give you their vote. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's. I think the. I think the I one- suspect the suburban moms at Fairfax County are giving you their vote for other reasons. Uh, that's uh, that's between me and the moms. Um, I don't know. I think I think if you just talk about healthcare and you say like, yeah, I don't care about this like crazy culture war stuff. Like, yeah, we should like our schools should be well funded. Our people should have good wages. People need healthcare. And um, you know, if someone asks something about like the history of slavery, it's obvious that it's like one of the worst atrocities in human history. Uh, but this like this whole like you know our kids being taught like graduate level like terminology about like you know the pervasiveness of racism everywhere no um but are liberals really obnoxious about how they talk about race yeah so uh, i think i think you just have to say like this is a stupid thing like let's get down to like the bread and butter issues yeah, um, it's almost like they, they, you got to do a flip side of what Youngkin did when they tried to just paint him as a, a Trump Trumpist, a white supremacist, or whatever. Like he never really took the bait. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't take the bait, is the thing. If you take the bait, you're already you've already lost. There is no argument. Once you've eaten the bait, whatever you say is is irrelevant. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just that clip of that supercut of all the uh, liberal pundits on cable news just saying just everyone's a bit horribly racist. I mean, let's put aside whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. It just it strikes me as like self-evidently like disaster from the point of building uh, a coalition for your politics. You know, like assuming they are, let's assume they are these people just racists or whatever. Right. Um, or like everyone in America is just irredeemably um, infused with the magic poison of white supremacy. Um, then what do you do about it? 
You know, right. what is your what is your solution to that? Just simply repeating it over and over again uh, is completely ineffective and counterproductive at building the kind of coalition necessary to defeat any structure of oppression that you may worry about in this yeah. country. And that, I mean, but that assumes that you have in mind, oh, I need to build a coalition in order to carry out my political program. Like if you're being serious, if you're serious about politics, like the answer is so obvious that like the people in front of you, the voters have all different good and bad, tons of bad, tons of weird, tons of idiosyncratic ideas about the world. And you as the one who's trying to change the world have to make your case and say, there's a lot going on. Let's focus on the thing that we can all agree with, which is that our healthcare system is completely destroyed or that you haven't gotten a raise in a decade that like there's certain fundamental issues that I really I just think fundamentally, like if that's what you're prioritizing and that's how you build your coalition, because you have a, an understanding of who people are and what they need in life. Uh, and as materialists, we say that people are probably going to prioritize those issues over, you know, some kind of syncophanic cultural uh, phenomena. Uh, you know, you'll probably both like get them to support you, get, you know, you might be able to, you at least have a shot at like pursuing your program. And in the meantime, like those bad ideas, quote unquote, bad ideas, whatever they are, like some genuinely really bad ideas, like if it's like some racist ideas or something that you just find unappealing for whatever reason, they're probably not going to stick around if like you see each other as like, you know, uh, in the same fight together, that, like you build solidarity that you say like, Oh, you're my brother, you're my sister. And like, you know, we'll come to some greater common understanding about like how to be decent to one another in the, in the fight. So I, I think, but I just think that's like, that should be obvious. Like if you're serious about taking power and about changing society, like, you have to make those decisions. These people are just serious about posting. They just yeah. need to post more. Yeah. And they don't care about taking power. They're fine just uh, yapping on MSNBC. Oh, well, and, those, uh, I mean, the people, the, yeah, I mean, the MSN, the CNN people, I mean, th th that's literally, those are the elites. Those are like, yeah. like multi six figure people who, you know, they get, they live extremely nice lives and then they get to, to go on TV and be like, were we, were we mean? Are we wrong? Did, maybe everyone else is wrong, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back tomorrow and do this job again and just comment on something else. And yeah, that was great. That was a great segment. Um, man, the India Walton stuff is so infuriating. Yeah. What's What's particularly infuriating is how much she got punished for being poor versus you know Byron Brown's. <laughs> disgusting like history of you know harming his own community yeah you know his, with his pro-corporate policies and all of that and corruption yeah it's just the way the system works but i think that the um solution is the right one and i'm really glad that he chose to uh do his segment on that you know just to like you said to put things in perspective uh and look i despise the republican party but i hate the democrats like yeah. it's just they're so awful. Yeah. And and the thing is that, like, I think a lot of people feel that way. And yet it's still really difficult to actually overcome, like to provide an alternative to the Democrats. Uh, we Either internally, either saying 
you know, I'm going to take you out in the primary and then basically like occupy your seat as like a progressive, as like a socialist or however you are campaigning as a pro worker candidate or as some other like third party situation, you know, it's just, it's really difficult to even like in or out of the party, it's difficult to get people to say, I'm going to go along with this alternative, not because like they're dopes, not because they like don't need healthcare or wages or something. Uh, I think part of it is the fact that um, I think we have to be, we have to make ourselves appear more serious that we have to like, you know, demonstrate, uh, you know, a, a greater kind of political competency about like the problems and, and about like how to actually address them and govern. Um, but then also, I think a lot of it is just the fact that, uh, you know, we need to like just hit the pavement that much harder because like it's reasonable for people to, you know, if, if like the whole party, if the whole Democratic Party is rallying around some uh, establishment candidate against the insurgent and says, this person's a radical who is like selling you a bill, a bill of goods. Some people, you know, most people just don't have the time to like assess that claim. And will yeah. say, I, I'm just, I want to play it safe. Most people are going to play it safe. And so that's what happened with Biden. I mean, right. that is what happened with Biden's and yeah. you can't begrudge them for it because of how um, unstable, like the Trump years were, but at the same time, I mean, I, you got to do the work. Yeah. You're right. I mean, yeah. everyday life in capitalism means that most working people are going to play it safe because that's the most rational thing to do. Yeah. And so it expresses itself in politics. And so it's just it, it's a good reminder like the this these elections, I think, are just a good reminder of like it's not so simple of just like if you just have the right ideas, people will come to them like this is the job of organizing and it's hard and it takes a long time and it's like frustrating. But uh, that's kind of why we need more people to be doing it. Because uh, if it's just a couple of us that are continuously discouraged, um, eventually there won't be like that many people. And then the the problem is that capitalism is going to keep generating opposition. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. there needs to be some continuity with the past of like previous organizers who can then impart like, oh, we actually spent a decade, you know, uh, you know, hitting our head against the wall on this issue. And we figured out something to do about it. And uh, so you guys don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Yeah. And aside from the elections that took place this week, just looking at the outcome of the Build Back Better agenda or the budget reconciliation bill, it just really shows the limitations of relying solely on electoral politics to accomplish a better economic situation for people. Right. So um, I just keep seeing the same message over and over again. And uh, I hope others do too. Uh, We have to look at other countries that are uh, applying strategies that actually work. And so why is it that Scandinavian countries don't have like a federal minimum wage? And it's, again, it goes back to labor power. There's just so many examples and we, we, we don't have much of that here. And that really does put working people at a massive disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, hard organizing it's um again i've said it before and i'll just repeat it once more it's just the fact that it's not that workers here don't want that it's not that people here don't want like a better you know living situation or like a or like union representation like greater democracy in the workplace 
it's because there's just a lot of risk associated with fighting for that too. Yeah. And I mean, we see that play out in, you know, the strikes that are taking place now um, and strikes that have happened in this country's history. Uh, So yeah, I agree with you. I think humans are rational actors. um, Mm -hmm. And so they're going to try to minimize uh, the pain and minimize the risk. And um, sometimes, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So we can, we should go to Nina now, uh, Senator right. Nina Turner. Uh, we were very uh, honored and um, pleased to have a conversation with Senator Nina Turner yesterday. Um, again, this is not live. Uh, it's Nando one-on-one with Senator Nina Turner. I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, and then we'll come back and uh, we should have 15 minutes and we can maybe do a super chat or two. So uh, see you in a moment. It is our pleasure to be joined by Nina Turner, former Ohio State Senator and National Co-Chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Senator, thank you for being with us. It's great to join you, Nando. Really appreciate taking the time. Um, I want to start off by just getting your general reaction to the election results from this week. Obviously, the big race was in Virginia, where the Republican Republican Glenn Youngkin beat the Democrat Terry McAuliffe, uh, despite the fact that Biden carried the state by over 10 points. Uh, But it was also a tough night for Democrats in a lot of other places. What do you think happened there? Definitely a disconnect from the national level into the states, also on the local level. I mean, Democrats have had ample opportunity uh, over these last, you know, over eight months or so to show the people that they really are working very hard to change their material conditions. And part of that has to do with the policies that they're pushing and making those policies real and to have a real impact in the lives of people. Seeing the debate go back and forth about whether or not people are worthy of having, for example, paid leave or how many years you're going to extend the child tax credits, two-year college, you know, all of those things I'm sure depress the voters and also showed the voters very clearly that although the Democrats are in control, air quotes, not much is happening uh, that they can feel. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's you know, the, the debate um, kind of uh, in the post-election aftermath has been kind of mind numbing because, uh, you know, there's this there's this impulse, obviously, from from the Democratic Party to blame the left uh, for those results, although, you know, no one could confuse Terry McAuliffe for. Uh, che Guevara or something like that. Uh, but uh, they, the question that to them is like, well, you guys have been in there for, you know, a minute now. What do we got to show for it? Like, what do we got to show for it? And, and it and just seems like they, they, they don't have anything to run on. No, they don't. And not just not saying that that is the only thing, but when you are running a moderate, you know, somebody, I forget who put this out in social media, but I totally agree. Maybe it was uh, John from uh, TYT, but something like, you know, you got a moderate candidate in Virginia, for example, running for governor. You got a moderate president and you got moderates holding up the agenda that, although it's not as big as I would like to see it, could certainly help a lot of people. So you got all of that swirling. And at the same time, you have in McCullough a candidate that, you know, couldn't really run to the, he was kind of similar to the Republican in many ways. I mean, the types of money that he has taken, you know, over the years, very similar. You have the Republican candidate who actually now is governor elect running on things like increasing the the wages of teachers, 
Hello, somebody. Yeah. You know, he was running a very populist campaign. And while, meanwhile, McCullough is running against Donald J. Trump. There was such yeah. a disconnect. The Republican, he ran a very localized campaign, Nando, and I don't know if you agree with that or not. And you had McCullough primarily running a national race. Yeah. No, that it, it running against Trump just seems like people are, I think just people have moved on. But uh, um, I, I, I want to ask about uh, India Walton's loss in Buffalo. I mean, obviously a brutal race, uh, you know, against uh, the incumbent Byron Brown. Uh, despite the fact that she beat him in the primary, uh, the Democratic Party really circled the wagons to to stop India Wal- Walton, even allying with Republicans in, in New York to, to help Byron Brown get enough signatures for a writing campaign. Uh, that ultimately prevailed. Um, what was your reaction to that? It was very painful to see that I was on the ground with India Walton. She yeah. also, Nando came into Ohio while, while I was running for Congress. Her and her team supported her both with time, talent, and and treasure. And then her and her team, you know, by and large, certainly doing uh, a, a fantastic job. The The pain point there, and I hope that the entire progressive movement understands this, is that the corporatist wing of the Democratic Party will do anything, and I mean anything, and what happened to India Walton proves that out. They will do anything, try to change the rules, manipulate the rules, whatever it takes to try to defeat a progressive candidate. And what was her sin? Hmm. Coming from a lived experience and a working class background, a mother, a nurse, somebody who has a lived experience of pain and standing up saying very clearly to the citizens of Buffalo that I will center the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class. And as you noted, she actually won the primary. She was the Democratic nominee, and you still couldn't get high-level Democrats to back her. You had the chair of the party of New York compare her candidacy to David Flippin' Duke. That is how far gone the Democratic Party is gone. Is is they just gone? And so progressives have to understand that even though our policies that we're running on will be life changing, when it comes to doing this combat with the corporatist Dems, we got to fight them and fight them hard because they come at us with all they got. I often say, and 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 this is you know I'm I'm saying this in a symbolic way, not I don't mean it physically, but I do believe that they would go after their own mama to stop progressives <laughs> from winning. Really, I do. I mean, this is how bad it's gotten. And you yeah. saw some of the same traits in my race, too. The difference, India was the nominee. She made it through the primary. Not just made it, she won the primary. But Republicans got together with corporatist Dems to defeat her. No, nevertheless, as you know, you just laid out with a writing, which is, which is rare. And in my case, uh, my number one opponent got help from Republicans as well, the owner of the Patriots, you know, donated money, all kinds. Republicans even crossed over in a Democratic primary in my special election to support my number one candidate. So, I mean, my number one opposition. So again, corporatist Dems will do anything, even go after their own mama to defeat progressives. Yeah, I mean, obviously that that begs the question, right, about what is the left or the progressive wing or whatever is relationship to the Democratic Party, what it should be. Um, you know, we've seen how they, uh, like you said, they go after their own mama. Uh, we saw how how furiously they 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 rallied to stop uh, Bernie Sanders in 2020. I mean, I don't have to tell you. Um, and 2016. And 2016. Um, and, and you see, like, uh, the kid gloves with, with which they treat, you know, people like Manchin and Cinema when they're holding up their own agenda. Um, and they so get they, invited to the White House. Man. They, exactly. they act out and they get invited to the White House. 
progressives just demand uh, huma- humanity take take place in the United States of America and form a policy. And all of a sudden we're troublemakers. Right. So, it, it, again, it begs the question of, like, what is our relationship to the Democratic Party, what it should be? Uh, I mean, we're, it does feel like we're in a double bind. Obviously, like, we can't become Republicans. I mean, that's 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 out of the question. Uh, the third party option seems very difficult in America, in the history of American politics. It's just, uh, you know, requires kind of momentous changes in 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 the social fabric to, you know, um, party to emerge and it's hard to imagine like a party like the democrats just completely collapsing um so that's the what what do we do i don't know i don't know the answer but what what do we do (laughs) i'm not sure we have a relationship we got to come to grips with that in other words the progressives love the democratic party but democratic party don't love us and what do you do when uh, the other partners not doesn't love you that becomes the question for our movement. And when I say love the Democratic Party, I mean that progressives fully understand our and are many are committed, not all, because there's certainly some progressives who saying, you know what, they don't love us and let's go. You know, why are we gonna live in a be in a in a home that doesn't love us? The home ain't happy. And then there are others who say, this is our party too. You know, there's a song, uh, I forget what group, but uh, the words I will not sing, that is not my skill set, but it's my party and I can cry if I want to. I don't know uh, the name of the group, but that song is, you know, very familiar and popular culture. I think that some progressives feel the same way and is the reason why so many stay and fight within the Democratic Party. It's my party. I can cry if I want to, fight if I want to. And to not allow the corporatist wing who would want nothing more than to push out all of the progressives. So it is a double edged sword. It is hard to know, you know, not necessarily what to do, but to really come to grips with we have to fight a multi pronged battle. That's really what this is. We have to fight the corporatist Democrats within the Democratic Party, and we have to fight the Republicans. We got to fight neoliberalism, and we got to fight neofascism. And the progressive movement itself, we got to come to a bet to better grips with that, and then to create strategies by which we fight both of those forces. If I can, if I might, you know, take some words from one of my dear friends, Michael Rinder, aka Killer Mike, we got to plot, plan, strategize, uh, mo- strategize, organize, and mobilize. And that's what it's going to take. And it's going to be painful. And so we just got to yeah. come to grips with that. They don't love us. Matter oh, of they- fact, it ain't even that they don't love us. They hate us. They hate us. They, yeah. they hate us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they really hate us. I mean, and it's, it's, it's the, the frustrating thing for us is that like, you know, we know that we have uh, the issues on our side, right? That we, that we know that we, the issues on our side, I mean, opinion, opinion polling, uh, it, Time and time again, uh, shows that majority of Americans, not just Democrats but Republicans, you know, agree with the the policies and the political transformation necessary to improve the lives of of working people. Yet we we still fight these, uh, have these like massive uphill battles against a very powerful, uh, very entrenched establishment. Uh, you know, what kind of institutional? power do we need to build? What kind of institutional support um, do we need to build in order to, you know, not allow things like the Indian Walton thing to happen where, you know, where we can, where we can really flex a muscle and, and, and be like, no, you know, we won. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, publications like Jacobin, you know, you got uh, Common Dreams, you have Daily Post, I mean, so many uh, networks like TYT and others of the progressives that have their own uh, I, uh, their own podcast and and all of that kind of thing. 
I I would love to see progressive organizations and progressive institutions come together and let's do what Killer Mike recommended, plot, plan, strategize, uh, organize, and then mobilize within the movement itself. And so what I mean by that, there, there'll be many progressive candidates running and we should encourage as many progressives to run as we can. And then there'll be some races, Nando, that we look at and we say, you know what? As a concerted effort, we should get involved in that race. And India Walton's race is or was one of those races where I believe that progress. Now, there were progressive organizations helping her, like Working Families Party, Working Family, the Working Families Party and others. When I say a concerted effort, I mean the progressive organizations getting around the table, looking at races across this country and saying, okay. DFA, you you gonna have your set of candidates. DSA, you might have yours. Net net uh, net roots, you might have yours. PDA, you might have yours. That's fine. But these five races right here, we coming in hot. Meaning, we are gonna marshal all of our resources to help these five candidates come hell or high water. So that's one. The other is to be in constant communication with the movement because the movement is becoming discouraged. And that is really what the corporatist Dems want. They want progressives to lose hope, to throw up their hands and give up, to give up on fighting for Medicare for all, to give up on fighting for college for all, to give up on saying that we must have a billionaire tax in this country so that we can fund the things that we want to have in a in in this nation, a social contract with one another to to house the the people who don't have have housing. You know all of the things that lift up humanity and allow people to live out their greatest greatness. They they would love nothing more than for us to give up, and that's why they attack candidates like myself or like Senator Sanders or like India Walton and so many others. Well, we must reconcile ourselves to do that. We not we won't not we will not give up, and we got to put our sweat equity. Uh, our sweat equity along with our policies and be more strategic in our efforts to win these races. Because as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we need love and power, love and power go together. We already got the love in terms of the policies that we push. And Nando, as you highlighted very clearly, most of the American people are with us. We not on the fringes, the other side, they're on the fringes, they're out of touch. But we must win races so that people like an India Walton is an executive, is a mayor, and then we'll have the power to act on the policies that we are pushing. Yeah, and in in my bleakest moments, uh, and you know, politics these days has felt a little bleak. Um, you know, the the one encouraging kind of. Uh, green offshoot I've been seeing is the kind of very slight but but significant and impossible to ignore uptick in 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 labor militancy uh in recent months uh and you know the Jacobin party line is that there is no uh there is no left there is no progress there is no progressive uh change without uh labor power um and and we're seeing an uptick in labor militancy but but how do we how do we on the left, the political institutions on the left, the media institutions on the left, capitalize on that, link up with with that with that activity? Because it does feel like there is a slight disconnect um, or at least, you know, uh, it's not it's not coming from the same place, um, although it's coming from the same kind of issues and things like that. But but that the that there that the linkages could be stronger um, and, and the politics could could 
could translate from that labor militancy. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I mean, that's where we have to take make a concerted effort, be very deliberative about this, is to get together and, and plot our plan. I mean, that's it. It, it, I w- there is, it is just as simple as that. Now, getting it done is not simple, but how we get to it is simple. We have got to come together as organizations and institutions and declare... Nando, we're going to have a little, good. We got a good. little visitor. Uh, we're going to get a viral moment out of this. Yeah, we're going to get a viral moment going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's hello, oh, Nando. hey. Nando. What up? Say hello, Nando. What's your name? Say hello. Mama. You say, say hello. <laughs> say hello, Nando. What up? You saw, you've seen it here, Jacobin. Yeah. This is, there you go. This is the star of the show right here. Hell this yeah. is the real boss. <laughs> How do we reconnect? Um, the, the the left political movement that we're seeing to uh, the labor movement after you know decades of of that being uncoupled. Yeah, I mean we have to deliberately say that we are going to come together as organizations and institutions and plot, plan, strategize, uh, organize, and mobilize as Michael has has uh, you know laid out there for us. And there's nothing really new under the sun. We have generations before us who have done the same thing. I think about Asa Philip Randolph you know, comes to mind, the leader of the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters, one of the greatest union leaders of the 20th century and how he did organize. You know, they did plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize on behalf of uh, Black men who were working on the trains. As history reminds us, Asa Phil Randolph went to President FDR and said, you know what, I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to march on Washington. See, 1960s was not the first time that there was a thought to march on Washington. We seem sometimes to forget our history. And it was that threat of doing that that got that made FDR, you know, desegregate, desegregate the, the, the military. So we have that same power. We're just doing it in the 21st century. So we should definitely take some lessons from history and couple those lessons from history with some of the enormous tools we have at our disposal right now. What we have that our foreparents did not have, we have social media, we have Jacobin, we have all kinds of tools at our disposal to be able to get our message out worldwide. And we don't have to only physically be in those places and spaces. We can be there in the social media atmosphere coupled with being there physically. So we got to use those tools and we got to come together. The civil rights movement and the labor movement work so well together. Mm. We need to do that again. We need to have a repeat performance of that in the 21st century. Yeah. Now you've um, run several campaigns. You've been on the campaign trail in the past. You've won races. You've lost races. You've, but you've been out there uh, campaigning hard uh, for many years now. Uh, what are what are the issues based on your experience that matter most to working people? Like, what should our priorities be? What what principles, policies, and tactics should should we be should we embracing? Definitely healthcare by far. Uh, more people have talked to me about the state of their health care and also their wages. So I would say health care and wages. And those two things go, do go hand in hand. Unfortunately, in the United States of America, we continue to commodify health care. It is tied to a job. The pandemic has shown those, all of us, but particularly those people who just didn't get it before, that it is wrong to commodify health care. Number one, commodify health care. Number two, have that health care attached 
to a job. Millions of people lost their health insurance because they lost their jobs. And when you have adequate, not not just adequate health care, when you have good health care, there's really nothing that you cannot do. You know, you can be very creative in that. You can stay on the job, not stay on the job, open up your own business. You are just really much more secure in your person. And we know most bankruptcies are definitely linked to uh, people, the, the expense of health care. When it comes to wages, I mean, the runaway, let's know wealth, because we could do a whole different another session together when we talk about the gulf between the least of us and the few at the very, very top, the wealth gap is enormous and it is untenable. And I do agree with Dr. Robert Reich that we are in the second iteration of the Gilded Age, that we have Robin mm-hmm. robber barons of the 21st century that are really uh, just draining every, the whole life force out of this country because they're able to buy politicians. It is legal to bribe politicians in the United States of America. And it's happening at all levels of government, particularly on the federal level of government. These kinds of transgressions require a big response. And so we must continue to fight to elect people who actually care about the people who elected them and not just their owner donors. The movement must absolutely continue to push and not get weary in well-doing. And people who are poor, their lives do matter. And we must center the fact that the working class do deserve to live a good life. We are at a time in human history where the people in power do not believe that working people deserve to live a good life. Let's use Senator Manchin as an example when he was stripping away stripping away out of the the social and the climate portion of reconciliation. He didn't want people to have paid family leave. Well, why is that, Senator? And then he wanted to put conditions on it. But what's the conditions? He said because he was concerned that people would game the system. What, game the system? Like the ultra-wealthy do? Is that the kind of gaming of the system? Like there was... And there was some kind of disconnect that somehow working people are undeserving of having paid leave, which he didn't understand is that to get paid leave means you had to be working a job. So it is how do we center and lift the lives of people who work and work very hard and say clearly through our policies and through our actions that their lives matter, their quality of life matters, that they should be able to take a vacation. They should be able to buy a certified used car. I always joke, you know, when I'm giving my speeches and I talk about that. Most working people are not asking for too much. They just want to be able to live a good life, stress-free, not having, well, not totally stress-free, but limit because we can't be totally stress-free, but to limit the stress. Why should one job should be enough? You know, so those are the kinds of things. So having health care that is Medicare for all, have, making a living wage, living in safe communities, education, that is why college for all is so important. And we can't even get this, this Congress to move on two years. Just free two years. And what it is, is an investment because you and I know, and the people who are joining us today know, it's not free. It's an investment. Mm-hmm. It is just as we, at one point, education was very limited to certain people. We expanded that. 
So we have a K through 12 model in the United States of America where we as a society make that investment. Well, in the 21st century, it is time for us to have a paradigm shift and we need to make that investment pre-K to college. So the things that we are asking for and that the movement is asking for and fighting for is not too much. People are drowning. People are overwhelmed. People people just can't make ends meet every single day and they're working the working poor. That's why we call it the working poor. That means that people are working. They're working so hard, mm. but they can't they can't make ends meet. So it's not any it's not OK any longer to put that burden on the individual. It never was. We see very clearly that it's not about individuals. It is about a system that is rigged for the few against the many. One of the things that um, when I talk to people, I get the sense of is that politics is everywhere these days. Like there's a huge pressure to be politically active and engaged, uh, huge social pressure um, to be, you know, to think about politics, to consume political media and things like that, um, to know who the people are who are in politics. Um, and that there's this that there's this huge social pressure that and people do genuinely have an earnest kind of desire to participate and to do something and to make a difference. Um, last year in 2020, we saw some of the biggest uprisings we've seen in American history. Uh, there was there was an election that was dubbed, you know, as they all are, the most important uh, consequential election of our time. And then, like you just said, we can't even get four weeks of paid family leave like which is just the 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 crumbiest of the crumbs that you can expect in any sort of system so there's this feeling that all this energy um just smashes up against a, a a dam and and just withers away because um because there's just the system is so intractable so how how do you tell people to first of all not give up hope not turn on each other um but also um also like channel their democratic energy into something that they can feel has some sort of tangible um, effects. Yeah. That we have to get together a lot more often. You know, I was really by way of example, and you may remember this, it was in 2016, right after the primary where the national nurses united, it was led by Roseanne DeMauro at the time, but those nurses organized the people summit mm-hmm. And it was it was a beautiful thing just to have the vision to do that, knowing that we who believed in both the movement and Senator Sanders being the the leader of that movement, the person that said, I will go, I will run for president, you know, galvanized millions of people across the country and even the world. People were hurting. They're like, damn, our candidate did not make it. And for the National Nurses United to have that vision that they wanted to bring the people together was a beautiful thing. So from time to time, we got to have a family meeting and have that family meeting to reassess, to celebrate, and even to mourn, to plot, to plan, to strategize, to organize, and to mobilize. That's what we must do. So we got to lift each other and keep each other motivated. That's that's a, that's wonderful. Now, even in the fight, though, because we're going to have valley moments and we will have mountaintop moments. We'll have moments where we question our sanity in the work that we're doing and moments where we say, yes, this is why we are doing it. We cannot have a circular firing squad, even on the progressive left. Everybody doesn't agree 100 percent with each other. And that's OK, too. And we have to be able to say that's OK without questioning the, the integrity of somebody, unless they have shown you very clearly that they've gone to the dark side. Why would you do that just because you don't agree? You know, there's a saying that that uh, goes like this. If two people always agree, one is not needed. 
And we have to mature and become more disciplined in this movement because we can't afford to fight each other because we got to fight the neoliberals and the neo-fascists and we're going to fight each other. That's a losing battle. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn into Chuck Todd for a second and uh, ask, uh, what's next for Senator Nina Turner? (laughs) What's next? Let's break some news. Let's make some news. Well, I tell you what, I will come back to make news. What is absolutely next for me, and I know 100%, is that I am going to continue to use my cachet as a thought leader to push and to prod and to be side by side with that. My, I am a hell-raising humanitarian. I'm going to keep raising a whole lot of hell whether I run again or not. I think I, I hear within that question is kind of, are you running again? And I am not sure what I'm going to do in that regard. I All options are still on the table. But what I do know for sure is that I am going to continue to be one of the leaders in this movement, both side by side with the grassroots in this movement, and to be able to use what God has gifted me to have, my influence, to help garner and to, and to elevate all of us to the, to the next level. So I'm not going anywhere. I will be raising hell one way or the other, either on the inside or the outside, but rest assured, I will be raising hell for good, making that good trouble that Congressman John Lewis talked about so often. Well, Senator Nina Turner, a hell-raising humanitarian, thank you so much for your time. You're one of the best of us, one of the best people in our movement. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you, Nando, and back at you. And I really appreciate Jacobin and all that you do to elevate the struggle here in in this country and also the solidarity abroad. It was because of Jacobin. I want the people who are joining us to know that I just got back from the UK and I just, I want to thank Jacobin so much for connecting me with your sister organizations uh, in the the UK and to be able to stand side by side with the postal workers over there who are trying to nationalize. Go Mm. figure. They're trying to nationalize their postal service. And we got Republicans over here that are trying to uh, may, trying, trying to privatize our postal service, but it was indeed an absolute honor. And I look forward to continuing to be in partnership and allyship with Jacobin. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> woo, woo, woo. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, she rules. <laughs> yeah, she does. She's awesome. Um, what I, what stood out to me in that interview, well, all of it was great, but um just the just the relationship of uh, progressives to the Democratic Party. Um, mm-hmm. And I think she's absolutely right. Like the corporate wing of the Democratic Party will fight their own mom. Like yeah. a- anything that it takes, even if it means allying with the right wing. And when you look at what happened to India Walton and then you think about the type of rhetoric the corporate wing of the Democratic Party used against Bernie Sanders for being a registered independent, who caucuses with the Democrats, of course. Um, it just gives you a sense of how disingenuous they are in, in pretty much all of their arguments uh, against a progressive candidate or against the progressive movement. Yeah. No, you can't You can't take these people seriously at face value. Like, of, co- there are, of course, they're, they're going to say something that is contradictory or, you know, uh, they're a politician. They're trying to, like, get as many people to, to not hate them in any given moment so that they can try to, you know, win re-election or something and um but like if it hasn't already become obvious to to everyone certainly people on the left already are aware of this but like and getting sun ray in my eyes but uh it's 
obviously like the party, like the actual establishment hates the left, like, and even the, the, so, okay. So there's some that obviously just hate us. Like the Clintons hate us. Obama's hate us. Like some others, I think there's some that are maybe a little bit more open or sympathetic that are maybe don't hate us, but uh, they're still going to do everything they can to crush us. Not because they, you know, it's like some ideologically motivated thing, but it's like, that's just politics. Like, Mm -hmm. because like they effectively are like, they're managing the economy on the behalf of capitalists. Like they're making sure that conditions are, you know, decent for like, I'm on, (laughs) I'm on Arrakis right now. I'm in the desert. Um, (laughs) uh, That, uh, yeah, it's, it's so like, obviously Nina Turner and uh, India Walton have like faced. uh, They've experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Um, And that's the thing is like, we have to understand like, this is, this is the response they're going to give us every single time. And like, things aren't going to change unless like we actually have, like greater capacity on our side, effectively. That's, Mm -hmm. we don't, it's not, we're no longer at the stage where we have to like win an argument, like at the level of like general politics or something. Like we have to convince people that it's worth going, like going with us in our fight for these politics. And that's a different question than like, do you think healthcare should be a human right? It's like, Mm -hmm. we're going to fight for this. And are you going to join us in trying to to succeed in, in this fight? Um, so that's the, it's it's just, all of this has to be a question of capacity, of capacity on our side and costs on their side. Can you impose costs on elites, on whether it's the ruling class or the political class, so that they then have to acquiesce to our demands? Mm-hmm. So right. we, we have a couple minutes and we can do a few questions. Um, so if you have a question for us on... Uh, anything that we've said or anything we haven't said, if you if you really you know are trying to read our minds and uh, and you have you have some burning question that you think we have an answer to, uh, we'll try to do our best. Uh, and you can submit a super chat, or if you're a YouTube member, you can just write a question. Um, and speaking of which, there was actually a question earlier from a member, uh, Mary, who I wanted to read um, because it's related to everything we're talking about right now. And, and she writes. There are simply too many rich people in Congress. How can Manchin understand poverty? Totally. No, I mean, Mary, you're so right about that. And the way that this system is set up really does put the very, like, individuals who voted these members of Congress into power at a disadvantage because they are not barred from investing in individual stocks. Like, just let that sink in for a second. Like, that should be an outrage for everyone, but it's Mm -hmm. not. No one ever talks about it. It makes me crazy because they're making decisions. They govern in ways that impact the very businesses that they themselves are shareholders of, right? So are they going to pass policies that um, in any way jeopardizes the profits of these companies? Of course not, because their return on investment 
relies on them taking it easy on these corporations, deregulating and allowing them to do anything and everything necessary to maximize profits. Right. And that means that the person at the the person with the biggest disadvantage is the worker. Right. So the system is intentionally set up that way. And, you know, obviously you can have lawmakers here and there. I know there are progressives who have, um, decided against taking corporate PAC money. Uh, I don't know if they're invested in individual stocks themselves, but you have, again, legalized bribery um, thanks to the Supreme Court's uh, rulings on that. And then on top of that, which I think actually serves as the biggest conflict of interest, you have them invested as shareholders in these corporations that they're supposed to be regulating. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the the problem when it's like literally either business owners themselves or just like their lackeys coming into office. Like, yeah. and so it's actually, it's interesting. Um, there's a new survey that we covered on Jacobin show earlier this week, and it's going to be uh, live, I believe on November 9th on, uh, on Jacobin magazine.com. Um, and it's just a survey of like working class, poli- working class political interests and um, attitudes towards uh, different uh, election scenarios. So, it's various matchups of, you know, this kind of person versus this kind of person. Who do you support? Um, uh, a lawyer that centers um, defund the police and uh, a construction worker that centers Medicare for all and uh, a corporate CEO that says we need to work across the aisle and have moderation, whatever. All these different options or whatever. There's a whole different, uh, those aren't the only options, but um, what it shows and you guys will see it hopefully soon. Um, again, you could just watch the interview. Uh, we recovered it already. Um, what it shows is that like actually working class people want working class people in office. Like mm-hmm. that, maybe that seems obvious, but it actually is electorally beneficial to have, to run working class people as opposed to, you know, the corporate lawyer or, you know, the business owner uh, that, that actually matters to people. Um, and, I think that's good news on the one hand that like, you know, yeah, we actually, you know, on the one of that, that first layer of kind of uh, government bias towards business is just the fact that it's literally the same people. You mm-hmm. start by scrubbing that, um, you know, people are in favor of that and they want working people in office. The problem obviously is that you have to get them elected and it's really challenging as India Walton just demonstrated like what it's like when you have like a working class nurse run for even mayor of like a, a small deindustrialized city up in upstate New York. It's tough. Like it's, it's, it's just because like politics is a game of resources. Like either yeah. if you have resources, you have more money on your side, probably going to win. Um, it's like unusual when the side that doesn't have, uh, the most resources loses. So, you know, I think that's, um, and then, you know, and then, and then if we can like actually get working class people elected, then we can like take on some of like the even stickier issues of like the fact that again, there's a long history of like people, working class people actually getting elected into government in this country and around the world. And, uh, and there still is a bias towards business and like trying to understand like, how do we mitigate that? And truly it's, it's only going to come through like working class movements, uh, mass action, mass politics. Uh, so the labor movement and kind of accompanying uh, movements uh, are sort of kind of orbiting around the labor movement 
Um, so long way to say, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was a, another interesting question, actually. Uh, Warren had, is asking us, what do the hosts think about leftist, uh, organized, leftist org messaging around the Biden Build Back Better legislation? Uh, on the one hand, if it passes, should we celebrate what has been won? Or on the other hand, uh, you know, should we lament that it's just a drop in the bucket that um, it doesn't or does this even not matter? I guess that's kind of the end of the question. Well, for me, um, my perception of where that bill stands today and assuming that it passes, it is dominated by business interests, corporate interests, because the one provision in that bill that actually would have an impact, uh, a positive impact on Americans' lives is the universal pre-K. That's the only provision that is not heavily means tested. It's the only provision that everyone, it's universal, right? So I bring that up because if you take a step back and you look at what got wiped out from the bill and what remains, anything that remains also tends to help businesses and corporations, right? The point of universal pre-K isn't to benefit the actual family, although, uh, you know, they do end up benefiting because they, they're able to put their kids in universal pre-K. It's really about freeing up labor so you can have more workers, especially workers compete with one another for these jobs, which allows them to lower wages. So it, that's a huge part of it, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. like, will it change people's lives fundamentally? I don't, based on what's in it now, I don't think so. Are there some good provisions in it? Sure. I think the best one, again, is universal pre-K, only because it also benefits corporations. However, um, if you look at the other social safety, I'm um, sorry, social spending programs included in the bill, everything is heavily means tested. Mm -hmm. uh, Nancy Pelosi put four weeks of um, family leave back into the bill, but they implemented even stricter uh, means testing. So not everyone would even, because, you know, it's only uh, like some people in the country who might want to take a little bit of time off after delivering a baby. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of an attitude baby. thing. <laughs> yeah, some people yeah. have that attitude. Some people don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but in terms of like a progressive messaging or left-wing mm -hmm. messaging, um, it's not enough. And for me, uh, my biggest frustration has been especially this week with the progressive wing of the democratic party, mm. because they seem to lack any awareness about their very real leverage in these negotiations. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, regardless of what Joe Manchin says, and I do think he's just engaging in a game of chicken. And unfortunately he won that bill is something that corporations desperately want because it's a handout for them. They want it. And Manchin wants it. Cinema wants it. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party wants it. Hell, even Republicans want it. 19 Republican mm -hmm. senators voted for it. Progressives should have used their leverage and they should have refused to vote in favor of the bipartisan bill until they got a robust reconciliation bill. But they folded this week. And, and that's why I'm so upset with them. Right. Yeah, I mean, from the the point of view of business, like the infrastructure bill, like that's just what business is supposed, or excuse me, that's just what government's supposed to do for them. Like mm -hmm. their 
and and so that's why like you know at some level like it's not even sometimes it is more organized but it doesn't even have to be that organized like just broadly like it's not like every capitalist is calling up every other capitalist and is like all right so this is what we're going to do this week to tank this part of the bill and get this part it's just like no they broadly need conditions in the economy to be such that it helps them make a profit and so they're in favor of the infrastructure and they think all the other stuff is a waste of time it's a, like and it's not they like they they're finding you know what maybe my employees you know could use xyz in their lives maybe but uh, i'm actually doing just fine squeezing them crushing them to to nothing and they're still showing up every day so Yep. Maybe they maybe they don't need all of these extra social spending uh, initiatives or, or programs. It's uh, so like just like from their immediate interests, like that's what they want. That's what they're going to do, and like that's what government is going to typically produce, unless you have something in society that can counteract their hold on the government. Because again, the the, the politicians have to. Like they're, they're just like their logic for existing as like, as uh, managing society and the economy is, is profitability going up? Is growth going up? Um, because if it's not, if it's going down, then unemployment is going up and therefore we're going to lose our seat. Like it's just these macro dynamics of the system that like push politicians in support of like, cutting every little bit of social spending and, and like welfare programs in, in this bill. Uh, and I mean, like, as again, like I don't see Joe Manchin as like a particularly like bright individual. Like it's, he's, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing mysterious going on in his head. It's just like, this, this is just like what happens this is what happened in Obama. This is what has mm-hmm. happened in countless other administrations. This is what happens when this is the, relationship between government and business and there just isn't something else right now to to fight for the social spending and so i think like we just have to if the bill produces you know marginal some some whatever it is some improvement in living standards for working people great that's good like we want that because that like it's part of our aspirations of having a society that is to the benefit of all people where we put people's needs over profit. It's not at all going to meet the minimal like demands that we have as a movement and as people on the left. And so I think you just don't be moralistic about it. You don't say like, this is good or bad. I know I just said good, but like the good thing is like that people have a better living standard. It's not like the bill is good or bad. It's just, yeah, this is the thing in front of us. This is now the new like terrain that we're on that we have to fight in or on and, and then, you know, if it passes, then there's going to be new fights coming up ahead. And um, and the only chance that we have at succeeding in those fights is by just creating greater organizational capacity on our side that like we have to, you know, we can it's easy to talk about these things. It's easy to be mad, but like to actually like stand a chance in the fight, like we have we got a lot of work to do on our end. Agreed. Absolutely. um i think uh jerry had sent us uh just a super chat and that was very kind of you um thank you jerry and maybe just the very last one because you would also ask like ask us a question and then we'll wrap it after this 
Um, I have, I, Jerry writes, I often have slight guilt when informing my friends of unpleasant news, but not offering uh, or not being able to offer concrete solutions, um, which can foment a sense of um, doomerism. Uh, doomerism, yeah. Um, any tips to overcome the sense of guilt? Uh, I mean, you just can't put you the. Yeah, go ahead. Just you just can't put the weight of like our horrific society on your individual shoulders. Absolutely, don't make that mistake. And it's it's so easy to fall victim to that, but just don't make that mistake. I think that you know people need to be wide eyed and need to understand what's going on, and think about how much we have going against us in this fight because there's so much like disinformation out there about what's really taking place. Right. Um, And there's endless so-called news organizations who totally cover up the reality of what motivates and drives lawmakers. And so don't, I don't consider it doomerism, right? I, I think that we talk about solutions here on Jacobin's YouTube channel more than anywhere else um, because the focus isn't solely on what we can do electorally. Um, that's just one, in my opinion, smaller part of what the solution is. Um, so the focus uh, on organizing, the focus on labor, I really, really think it's important to to keep focusing on that and and to also look at this nation's history and specifically focus at it on a time when there was labor power and what was accomplished through that kind of organizing and labor. Um, so it's not, don't, first of all, don't feel guilt. And secondly, turn to history, turn to what works in other countries because there are solutions. So if you want to offer them, you just got to do a little work and, and figure out what they are and just keep watching the show because we talk about that and highlight it quite a bit. Yeah. And if, if you can't get your friends to, you know, to come around to, to your position on these things, to your worldview, to how you understand what's going on, um, you know, it just, it is what it is. And I think like a better use of your time, not that I'm not saying like, don't, I mean, you should still hang out with your friends, but like, if, if like, you're feeling like, like, oh, like I'm not doing my part to like convert these people or something, you can also like get involved in an political organization. There are, uh, you know, three letter acronym political organizations out there that uh, pursue politics like Medicare for all and other things and, um, and taxing the rich. And, you know, that might be, uh, you know, a a better way to channel that guilt and say, okay, I'm just, I'm going to spend a few hours this weekend working on this, that yes, it's all a drop in the bucket right now. um, But you know, like if you are doing your part, if someone else is doing their part, um, you know, the, um, uh, our mod just put in the, the chat, the, um, New York taxi workers Alliance that there was a major victory oh, this past right. week. Yeah. So like organizing works, even when you're like, you know, it's a David Goliath uh, situation. And so, um, it doesn't always work, but it can work. And so like, you should try to do what you can when you can, um, to support these initiatives and these fights. Um, it's just, what else are we going to do? I think that's a, that's a good positive, uh, place to end the show today. And you see that kale, I knew that we didn't need an additional segment or interview to fill the show. I knew there was going to be a ton to talk about. And, uh, even with Nando gone, um, he did a great job with his uh, decode. I really enjoyed that and the interview. So, um, anyway, you missed him. 
He will yeah. be back next week. <laughs> you, you will finally get Nando. So we hear. We'll see. <laughs> He's been super busy. He's been, you know, working a lot. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm really looking forward to having him back on. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Yeah. Thank you, Kale, as always. Oh, he's calling you? No, I'm calling him. Oh, you're calling him? <laughs> oh, he's, he's not picking up. All right, well, <laughs> we'll get him for next week, folks. For sure. All right, everyone, have an excellent weekend. We love you guys so, so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye.